Amen. All right, well, brothers and sisters, please open with me in God's Word to Revelation. And if you have your uh, Revelation notebook, again, uh, hopefully you, you brought it with you this morning. Uh, you can turn there to chapter 4, Revelation chapter 4 here on page uh, 16 of this notebook uh, together. Um, but as you're turning there, it's good for us to reflect a moment this morning on this question. How much are you struggling with fear in your life? How much fear do you find yourself living in or living with in the day in which we're living? Because, of course, if you spend much of any time at all watching the news on TV or perhaps reading the news over the Internet, it's easy to become fearful of what's happening both in our country and around the world. For all, we wrestle over the reality of racism as protests and riots are more and more often taking place in our streets. Of course, we all know that there is a global pandemic which causes many to fear for their lives, as well as the stripping away of our human rights and liberties. And of course, religious freedom today is under attack to accommodate a new and perverse sexual morality, as well as a redefinition of gender identity that is in opposition to God and how he has created us. We then as Christians face a future with increased opposition. We face a future with legal, corporate, and social exclusion. And we face a future with worldly pressure to conform, to accept, and to approve. So it's no surprise that we struggle with fear as we live with growing temptations, trials, and troubles in our lives. Well, brothers and sisters, this morning, Christ asks us to take our eyes off of what is going on in the world and to look up at what's going on in heaven. And it's in heaven that our fears are removed and that they're replaced with confidence and hope. So let us then read together here from Revelation chapter 4. Where the Apostle John writes, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you the things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne, and he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and on the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads." And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. 
Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like a calf. The third living creature had the face of a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. And they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Well, brothers and sisters, before we continue, let us again approach our God who sits on the throne in prayer. Oh, Father, what a vision of your glory has been recorded for us in your word this morning. May you then help us to remove whatever may be on our minds and hearts, the, the, the concerns of this world, so that we can focus on your glory as your word is preached. Oh Lord, we pray that you will be at work among us, that you will speak to us through your spirit, empowering the preached word so that we will not only hear of your glory from this vision, but the Father, we will rejoice in it. And we will live with the, the confidence and hope that you give through this vision. Because you are the one who is seated on the throne. Father, pray, we, we, we pray then that you will bless this time our study together as we ask these things in the name of our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So how are our fears overcome, brothers and sisters? They're overcome as we behold our God who rules over all things from heaven. Behold, our God who rules over all things from heaven. This is the result of John's vision, which it, we can divide into three parts. First, in verse 1, there's God's heavenly invitation, followed in, by verses 2 to 5 with God's heavenly throne. And then finally, in verses 6 to 11, we have God's heavenly worship. So God's heavenly invitation, God's heavenly throne, God's heavenly worship. Let's begin then with verse 1 by looking at God's heavenly invitation. And of course, we haven't been in Revelation now for a few months, so let's briefly review what we have heard so far from this letter. Uh, we can turn back together to Revelation chapter 1. 
You can go back a couple of pages, Revelation 1 and verses 9 to 11, where John writes more about this letter and he explains how this letter came to be written. So Revelation 1, verses 9 to 11, John writes, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And... What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So the Apostle John here is receiving a revelation from God through symbolic visions on the Lord's Day, which is the first day of the week. And Christ says to John here to record these visions so that they will be sent to these seven churches in this ancient region of Asia Minor as they are living in tribulation. But these seven churches represent all of Christ's churches through this age. Which is why as Revelation continues, the very first vision John receives is of Christ in all of his glory, ruling and reigning from heaven. So that these believers are shown that in the midst of their temptations and trials and troubles, that Christ is reigning as king over his kingdom until he returns in this world. But then each of these churches receive a letter from their risen and ruling king who calls them to overcome in this sinful world by persevering through their faith in Christ and repenting of their sin. And since these seven churches represent all of Christ's churches, we ask ourselves, how do these churches or these letters reveal to us more about our church, how we need to live? in the same kinds of temptations and trials and troubles? What is Christ showing us about ourselves as we live in this cursed and corrupt world? Well, once these letters are completed, this brings us to chapters 4 and 5, where John explains what happens next. Here he receives another vision. And so we read at the beginning of verse 1, John saying, After these things I looked... And behold, a door standing open in heaven. So what does John look and behold? But an open door in heaven. You see, since we are separated from God in our sin, heaven is not open for us to enter. But God provides an entrance into his presence through his Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's Christ who comes and lives a life of righteousness and purity that we refuse to live in our sin, and then takes upon himself the very judgment of God that we deserve as God's wrath is poured out against him on the cross. So Christ takes the judgment of God upon himself as he is punished in his death 
in our place. And it's then through this death that he triumphs over the curse of sin, which is death, when he is raised from the dead three days later. Brothers and sisters, this is where our hope is found. And it is in this gospel message of Jesus Christ that we are no longer separated from God and alienated from God and under the judgment of God, but that we are reconciled with God. And that God then invites us into his presence to enjoy eternal life with him forever. This is our salvation. So that we will return to God and rejoice to live in his presence forever. Jesus said to the disciple in John 1:51, Most assuredly I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. So here, John sees a door standing open to enter God's throne room in heaven, which shows that he has been given access as a believer in Christ to the place where God dwells so that he too can enjoy God's presence. But once again, as we heard in chapter 1, John again hears Christ's voice as a trumpet as this verse continues. Again, you can look at verse 1. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. So Christ invites John to send up to heaven and join him. Why? So that Christ will show him what takes place. Now, in chapter 1, verse 19, Christ said to John, Write these things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. So Christ here calls John up to heaven through a vision, so that John will see the things which must take place since the kingdom of Christ has been inaugurated through his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. Because he is now the one in heaven and inviting John then to join with him in a vision. But, as I read from verse 1, did you notice the word must? Christ there says, I will show you things which must take place after this. Because God is in control of all history including everything that takes place in this world. And so it must take place according to God's purposes and plan. Well, brothers and sisters, as we consider this invitation from Christ, this heavenly invitation, there are two mistakes we must avoid. First, we must avoid the mistake of seeing Christ's call to come up here as a reference to the rapture where Christ's church will then meet the Lord in the air when he returns, because this is a voice speaking to John, not to Christ's church. And this understanding confuses Christ's call to come up to receive these visions with what the visions themselves will reveal will happen. But then second, we must avoid seeing that the things which must take place after this are the things that will happen after the days in which we live. 
But the things which must take place after this are what will happen during this age of Christ's kingdom. You see, these things will take place to the seven churches of Asia Minor that John is writing to. And these things will take place to all of Christ's churches that they represent through this present evil age. So there's not some 2,000 plus year gap between chapters 3 and 4. But these visions are given for the churches John is writing them down for, and they remain relevant for all of Christ's churches today. Christ's revelation to John, then, is not like a crystal ball, which then shows him some distant events that will not begin until a few years before Christ returns at the end of the age. But these visions show him what will be true through this entire age, even as they intensify through this age until Christ returns. But I ask you here this morning, is heaven open to you? Is heaven open to you? Or are you still living in rebellion against God in your sin? Listen, without Christ, there is no entrance into God's presence in heaven. But there's only an eternity of suffering in God's wrath in hell. May you then find in heaven the joy that comes from the removal of your fears as Christ saves your soul and gives you the confidence and hope of heaven. Because Christ invites you to heaven through his death his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension, where you can live with him and will live with him by faith forever. Oh, turn away from your sins and turn to Christ by faith. Trust in Christ and all he has done for sinners through the cross. Heaven is open to all. Who believe in Jesus Christ. But not only does John have a heavenly invitation, but in this chapter we go on to see John recording God's heavenly throne in verses 2 to 5. Let's read verse 2. John writes, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. So John here is immediately in the Spirit as he was before to receive this prophetic vision from God in heaven. And he then records this vision for us to use our imaginations so that we will then picture God in all his glory. So this is not meant to merely be read but to be reflected upon, to picture what God has revealed to us through John. And what does John behold at the very center of heaven? It's not the earth, it's not the sun, it's not some other star, but it's a throne, the very throne of God himself. And it's God who is sitting on the throne of heaven. 
So John, in this vision, sees the sovereign majesty of God who is ruling over all things in, in his creation from heaven. Because God is the one with all authority in heaven and on earth to do whatever he pleases. Now, since no one has seen God at any time, here he is seen through a symbolic picture or appearance of precious stones. We read of this in verse 3, And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. See, God being seen in appearance as these precious jewels or stones is to show the glory of God in all of his majesty and magnificence. But these stones here both reflect and refract our God, who according to 1 Timothy 6.16, alone has immortality dwelling in inapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. So here, these stones reflect and refract this light of God, like a prism that produces a rainbow of color, that goes around his throne. Now, you may remember that God had established the rainbow in his covenant made with Noah in Genesis chapter 9. And after judging the earth with a flood, God, permit, uh, God commits to preserving his creation and gives the rainbow as a sign of his covenant commitment to us. So in these coming words of God's judgment through this revelation, here, we see his covenant promise will stand in the midst of what will unfold on the earth until his people overcome and enter into the new creation he has promised us. What a reassuring sight God gives to John and through him to Christ's churches. But then as this continues, we can picture in our minds concentric circles. You have this circle of the rainbow immediately around God's throne. And then there's another circle in verse 4. Where you read, around the throne were 24 thrones. And on the thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes. And they had crowns of gold sitting on their heads. So there's this now outer circle with 24 thrones and 24 elders sitting on them. But who are these 24 elders? And there is a huge debate on this question. There are some who say that this is... Um, well, that these 24 elders represent uh, either heavenly beings or angels. Well, there are others who say that these, 12 or these 24 elders represent human believers. And frankly, I don't have time to enter into this debate this morning, but I see truth, or at least the elements of truth, in both sides. Because these 24 elders represent Christ's church through human history by adding together both the 12 Old Testament patriarchs and the 12 New Testament apostles. So here you have the, the coming together of all God's people that have been redeemed by Christ through history. But at the same time, 
these elders are also differentiated from the saints of Christ's church as this revelation unfolds. Therefore, I see these 24 elders as angelic beings who represent God's people in heaven before him to minister for those who will inherit salvation. Here we have then the heavenly host that is gathered at God's throne with these angels ready to minister and serve God's people. You know, we often see angels through Scripture who are robed in white. And here these angelic elders also have their heavenly thrones and are wearing golden crowns to show their great power, which is then used in serving Christ's church. But this isn't all John sees, right? And so as the vision continues to unfold, he explains what he then sees coming out of God's throne itself in verse 5. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Now this is what God's people experienced in Israel when they came before God on Mount Sinai. And so we read in Exodus 19, verse 16, as they come to this holy mountain, Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, and the sound of the trumpet was very loud, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And throughout the Old Testament, these Thunderings and lightnings and noises reveal God's coming in judgment. These storms show God's judgment, which is why then we see these thunderings and lightnings and noises of roaring in God's coming judgments as revelation continues. But through these judgments, God... It's ruling from the throne to bring justice and vindication for God's people into this world. So again, these are words of reassurance to Christ's church as they behold their God. But before the throne, John also saw in verse 5, seven lamps of fire that were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. You may remember the number seven here in Revelation represents fullness or completeness or perfection. And so here there is the fullness of God in the Holy Spirit, which is seen in his heavenly throne room. And as John the Baptist spoke of the coming of Christ in Matthew 3, verses 11 and 12, he says that Christ He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And this fire is now before the throne of God, because God will judge his creation through the fire of the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, now that we have read and reflected upon this glorious vision of God seated on his throne. What do you think? What do you think of this picture of God? Because this is our glorious God. He is the one who is seated on the throne of heaven far above any earthly power. 
So whatever happens in this world, it is under the sovereign control of our heavenly king. What then do we have to fear? What is there to fear? The angels of heaven are surrounding his throne to serve us as God will pour out his judgment on this world. May we then find our confidence and hope in God's heavenly throne. So we have seen first God's heavenly invitation, and then following this vision with God's heavenly throne, but finally in verses 6 to 11, we come to see in this vision God's heavenly worship. Because as John continues writing down this heavenly vision of God's glory, he witnesses the heavenly hosts worshiping their divine king. And here John draws from the Old Testament prophets, especially the prophet Ezekiel's opening vision of God sitting on his throne in Ezekiel 1, as well as the prophet Isaiah's vision of God sitting on his throne in Isaiah 6. So he sees again, verse 6, that before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. So there is the sea of glass like crystal, which actually brings us back to the very beginnings of creation. In Genesis 1, verse 7, where God made the firmament and divided the waters under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And the prophet Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 22, builds on this creation imagery when he writes that the likeness of the firmament above the heads of the living creatures was like the color of an awesome crystal stretched out over their heads. So this sea-like crystal is a division between God and his awesome glory and majesty in his creation and us. We're separated by this sea of glass, which is transparent since God sees all that happens in this world. But then John sees, as verse 6 continues, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne, were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. And the first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, for the third living creature had the face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. So there are these four living creatures now in an inner circle who are surrounding or possibly supporting God's throne in heaven. But these creatures are unlike anything we've seen in the world, right? Children, you're not going to go to the zoo and see any animals or living creatures that look like this. No. What John sees here is what, very similar to what the prophet Ezekiel saw. It's like the chariot wheels of God's throne in Ezekiel's vision. These creatures, too, are full of eyes, watching over God's creation so that they will see all that takes place ready to serve him in this world. And these four living creatures are described in the same way that we hear the four living creatures described in Ezekiel chapter 1. And they are later recognized as the cherubim, these cherubim angels in Ezekiel chapter 10. Now, through history, there have been a lot of interesting interpretations about what these four living creatures represent. And some say they represent the very attributes of God, while others have actually said that they represent the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
But it seems to me that we recognize these four living creatures as angels who represent all of Christ's creation. If you think of the creation week and these animals that were created over God's creation days, which is why I believe G.K. Beale is right when he says that the four living beings represent general creation, while the elders represent the elect of God's special creation. You see then the relationship between these four living creatures and the 24 elders. The four living creatures represent general creation. And the elders represent the elect of God's special creation. His redeemed image bearers. Well, these four angelic living creatures then are standing next to God, ready to carry out his orders in this world. So that they will both lead in his worship and execute his judgment. Which then brings us to verse 8, where we read that the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. So here John draws on this Old Testament vision of God on his throne from the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. Because these angels, these seraphim, each have six wings, like these four living creatures do. Do you see then that John here sees the culmination of all the prophetic visions of God's throne in the Bible? Isaiah sees God on his throne in the temple. And Ezekiel sees God on his throne in the whirlwind. But here John sees God on his throne in heaven itself. Because he has entered God's heavenly throne room. That's why, he, again, he describes these creatures as full of eyes before the eyes were in front and back, but now they're all around and within because these eyes are everywhere. And no one can avoid or escape their watch over God's creation. They see all. And with their wings, they can swiftly carry out the will of their king. Again, this is our God who's ruling over all things in heaven. He sees all and is working out all things according to his purposes and plans. But what are these four living creatures doing in heaven? We go on to read in verse 8, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. These angels then are living day and night, continually praising God by worshiping him around his throne. Because this is what all of creation was meant to do. And these angels then carry out the worship of God's creation there in heaven before his throne. But here they then repeat the words from the seraphim in Isaiah 6, right? Holy, holy, holy. Because our God is holy and separate from his creation, our holy, righteous, and pure creator and Lord. Which is why this is repeated three times for emphasis. It's a superlative recognition of the holiness of our God, the greatness of his holiness. He is holy, holy, holy. 
So they worship God for his holiness, but they also worship God for his omnipotence because he's the Lord God Almighty and his eternity because he is the one who was and is and is to come. So this is a, 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 a praise coming from these four living creatures of the glory of our God who is thrice holy, who is all-powerful, and who is eternally forever. And then what happens next in this vision? The 24 elders join in this angelic worship. Their worship is described in verse 9, that whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne. See, here they are worshiping God by giving God glory, honor, and thanks because God is the one sitting on his throne. And he lives forever and ever. So he will always be king over his creation as our eternal Lord. Think of this. The 24 elders had their own thrones to sit on, right? And yet in their worship of God, what happens? They bow down, they fall out of their thrones and bow down in reverence to their God who sits on his throne and worship him. And they then take the crowns that they're wearing from their heads and they cast them before God's throne. Why? To show their submission to the one who is sovereign and superior over all. And listen, since these 24 angelic elders represent the redeemed people of God, Christ's churches also enter into his heavenly worship when we gather here on earth to behold our God in all his glory. What worship here is pictured as God is the one sitting on his throne? And what do these 24 elders then sing in worship? Well, verse 11. They're saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. They give God Glory, honor, and thanks, because he is the one who sits on the throne. And he is the one, then, who is worthy to receive our worship. Why? Because God is our creator, and we exist, and we're created by him. We exist, and we have our very lives, because he has willed it. So we are completely dependent upon God for our birth, for each breath we take, and for each day that we are given life in this world. So John here is privileged to witness a heavenly worship service where there's antiphonal singing. 
the four living creatures praise God for who he is. And then the 24 elders respond with praise for what God has done. And in this praise and worship of God, what do we learn? See, the Roman emperor may have claimed glory and honor and power, but Caesar was not Lord. It is our Lord is the one who's worthy of all worship because he is the one seated on a higher throne than the throne of the Roman Empire. He is sitting on the throne of heaven itself. So whatever may happen to these Christians who receive this letter, however much power this world may use to oppose and persecute Christ's church, God reveals to us our security under his sovereign rule so that we too will then join in this heavenly worship as our glorious God, looking forward to the future that he promises us to enjoy dwelling in his presence forever. Do you see then that whatever fears you may have, the glories of heaven can remove your fears and replace them with confidence and hope. So behold your God who rules over all things from heaven. Behold your God who rules over all things from heaven. I love how George Eldon Ladd summarizes this truth in his commentary. He writes, The terrible conflict that takes place on earth between the church and the demonic powers embodied in an apostate civilization, whether Rome in the first century or the Antichrist at the end, are in reality expressions in historical form of a fearful conflict in the spiritual world between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. Therefore, the revelation proper begins, or this Heavenly vision begins with the ultimate and eternal fact of God's enthroned and ruling in this universe. So however fearful or uncontrolled the forces of evil on earth may seem to be, they cannot annul or eclipse the greater fact that behind the scenes, God is on the throne governing the universe. Brothers and sisters, then may we take our eyes off of this world and lift them up to behold through an open door of heaven that our God is ruling on his throne over all things in this world. He is ruling over all things. And while what is happening in this world may not make sense to us, may it not be easy for us, may it leave our future uncertain. Brothers and sisters, this is uncertain. That God is ruling and that he is caring for his people until the end of the age where we will enjoy a new creation worshiping God in his presence. What then can we compare 
with beholding our God in all of his glory? Yet how quickly we tend to focus on the things of this world. We take our eyes off of God and we place them in this world. And so we may look to finding this security through the false promises of government or through the ongoing distraction of entertainment through the fleeting pleasures of worldliness, or even through the selfish reliance upon ourselves. And the truth is that the churches of John's day struggled with these things. And they even gave in to these things as we see through Christ's letters to them. Which is why Christ calls them to behold their God who rules over all things from heaven. And it's this same vision we need today. That we will behold our God who rules over all things in heaven. How then do we behold our God? We behold our God through joining with his heavenly host in worship, where God reveals himself to us in all of his glory through the ministry of his word. That's why then we gather together and worship on the Lord's day, as John received this vision on the Lord's day for his people. So that we will behold our God, who's seated on his throne. Come, let us adore him. But then we can continue to behold our God through the week as we read and reflect upon his glory through his word. You see, God's word is what reveals Christ to us, and it's Christ's voice that calls upon us here to behold our God. May our faith in Christ then lead us to behold our God who rules over all things from heaven. May this be our confidence and our hope as we live in this world. Let us pray. Oh, Father, may you relieve and remove our fears this morning. as we recognize and rejoice in the fact that you are the one who's reigning and ruling over all things in heaven. Father, as, as far as we have focused on the things of this world and, and, and been distracted from your glory, we pray that you forgive us. And as, as we repent, that you will return us to this glorious vision of you reigning and ruling on your throne so that we will have the confidence and hope 
that You provide through Jesus Christ to live in this world secure both in our relationship with God and in our future with God. Because You are the one who is working out all things according to Your perfect will. May we then trust You even in all of the uncertainty and all of the questions and even all the doubts that we may have as we live in this world. May we live by faith in Your Son and our Savior Jesus Christ. We pray these things then in His precious name. Amen. Amen.